3: Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how film and television use history to talk about today. My name is Leah Parody. And my name is Brian Krim.
2: We are historians who watch way too much film and TV. And whenever stuff is set in the past, we can't help but notice that whatever is going on when the film was made shows up on the screen, too. People make sense of the world by telling versions of history that seem to put the puzzle
3: pieces together or offer the most comfort. Our own lies agreed upon. Sometimes the connections between history and the here and now can be fairly obvious. But a lot of it goes unnoticed or misunderstood. And this is where we come in.
2: All our major institutions fell under intense scrutiny after 9-11. Later in this season, we'll look at movies and TV series that take on how an antiquated and incompetent government was implicated in the failure to stop the attack. But in the aftermath and the Bush administration's efforts to pivot away from the domestic failures surrounding 9-11 and towards a new enemy, Iraq, another institution long seen as part of the foundation of a healthy democracy, the press,
3: was both co-opted and, when the journalists wouldn't cooperate, demonized. In the wake of Watergate, when Nixon flouted the Constitution and denigrated the press, Alan Pakula's 1976 classic All the President's Men made journalism sexy and heroic again. Not surprisingly, as the book it was based on was written by the journalists who broke the Watergate story. This episode looks at three movies that celebrate what might be called heroic journalism. In response to the direct attacks of two administrations, George Clooney's Good Night and Good Luck from 2005, Tom McCarthy's Spotlight from 2015, and Steven Spielberg's The Post from 2017 go a long way towards rehabilitating the press, also known as the Fourth Estate, in light of post 911 failures.
2: So, what are the lies agreed upon that we're going to explore through these movies?
3: Well, first of all, we have three films that reassure us that there actually is a heroic fourth estate acting as a watchdog against powerful institutions. And maybe these directors are showing us historical case studies because the fifth estate is just that, history.
2: Or maybe the noble search for truth, with no regard for the financial bottom line, was never a reality when a handful of corporations own the vast majority of media.
3: And a second lie agreed upon might be that while the enemy in these stories is actually presented as Republican presidents or a conservative institution like the Catholic Church, the reality is far more bipartisan.
2: Yeah, make no mistake. The outrage in Hollywood that prompts these movies is definitely liberal outrage. But the culprits always encompass bastions of left-leaning power as well. And I think you'll see that in each one of these films. Let's start, as always, with a short recap of the plots.
3: 2005's Good Night and Good Luck is the second movie we're looking at from the writing-producing team of Grant Heslov and George Clooney. This was also Clooney's first directorial effort. It stars the always-wonderful David Strathern as Edward R. Murrow, Clooney as his producer Fred Friendly. Frank Langella as the head of the CBS network, William Paley, and Jeff Daniels as Sig Mickelson, head of CBS News. It also stars Patricia Clarkson and Robert Downey Jr., Tate Donovan, Alex Borstein in a great early performance, Reed Diamond, and Ray Wise, who turns in a heartbreaking performance as Don Hollenbeck.
2: The film recounts one of the most storied events in the history of journalism. CBS News decision to challenge Senator Joseph McCarthy, who has, of course, become synonymous with the Red Scare hysteria of the early Cold War, resulting in blacklists, careers and lives ruined, and a culture of paranoia, self-censorship, and disregard for the Constitution.
3: The film opens and closes, with Murrow giving a Cassandra-esque speech about the decline of independent, responsible journalism and the dire consequences to the health of democracy and civil society, as he also accepts an award for his lifetime of work.
2: The central plot of the movie is the first critical investigation of McCarthy's tactics, evidence, and conclusions as the head of the Senate Prominent Subcommittee on Investigations – Using footage from the actual
3: hearings, McCarthy speaks for himself throughout the film. But the other plot thread that is woven through the film is the tension between Murrow and Friendly's team's desire to do investigative journalism as the watchdogs of civil liberties and the commercial interests of the network. Their show, See It Now, was juxtaposed with the light entertainment of the celebrity interview show that Murrow was forced to host in order to help pay CBS's bills. The show was called Person to Person. And in the end, Paley turns See It Now into a -a once-a-week show on Sundays. The message is clear. Investigative journalism gets us in trouble with our sponsors. And so we won't abandon you altogether, but we won't champion you either.
2: At one point, Murrow, who was incredibly eloquent, obviously, as we know, and played so well by Strathern, states that we must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. This is at the heart of both his personal and professional defense against McCarthy. Let's listen to that speech with an ear for how it might have gone over with Americans worried about the excesses of the Bush administration in the wake of the Iraq fiasco.
0: No one familiar with the history of this country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating, but the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another... We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to associate, to speak, and to defend the causes that were for the moment unpopular. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the results. We proclaim ourselves indeed as we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home.
3: So here we see a direct connection, or maybe not so direct, being made between what is going on in the America in the years immediately following 9-11, and the America that is in the grips of the hysteria of the Red Scare. Now, a decade passes before our next two movies are released. And the the next
2: so our next film is Spotlight from 2015, which takes us back to the original investigation launched by the Boston Globe's Spotlight team into allegations that the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston had for decades hidden the fact that priests had been sexually abusing children and moved those priests to other parishes when accusations were made, allowing them to prey on more children. This investigation was the start of what we now know as a global crime and cover up by members of the Catholic clergy in
3: several countries. The film was directed by Tom McCarthy, who also wrote the film with Josh Singer. Interestingly, McCarthy, also an actor, played one of Murrow's team in Good Night and Good Luck. Spotlight stars Michael Keaton, Liev Schreiber, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, a particularly slimy Billy Crudup, a wonderfully frumpy Stanley Tucci, and John Slattery, who was also in Charlie Wilson's War, and this time is playing the Globe's editor, Ben Bradley Jr., son of the famed Washington Post editor-in-chief, who is played by Tom Hanks in the third movie we're going to be looking at today, The Post. Got all that?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think you see young John Slattery playing on the carpet in the middle of the uh, of, um Uh, The Post as well. He's selling lemonade or something. So, yeah, everything is connected. (laughs) See how he did that on purpose. Uh, The implacable attitude of the people in power, namely the city, church, and institutional leaders of Boston as a spotlight team, which is led by Keaton but pursued mainly by McAdams and Ruffalo as they demand answers, it really is a central component to the movie.
3: Yeah, there's been a cover-up perpetrated by Cardinal Law and the rest of the church leadership but also aided by the heads of the Catholic schools, white-shoe law firms personified by Crudup, and even the newspaper itself. There is a moment when Michael Keaton's character is forced to confront his own complicity because he didn't pursue the story years earlier when he had a chance.
2: Ruffalo as Mike Resendez, the the real-life journalist, is a lot like Dustin Hoffman's Bernstein. Angry, self righteous to the point of exhaustion, but really the moral center of the film. Where Keaton urges caution, Ruffalo sees a scandal for what it is. Let's play that clip. It's a very memorable outburst by Ruffalo.
5: We got him. You can't read these letters and think anything else. It's proof. Yeah, it is. Should we take it up to Ben? Not yet. Why not? We got law. This is it. No, this is law covering for one priest. There's another 90 out there. Yeah, and we'll, we'll print that story when we get it, but we, we gotta go with this now. No, I'm not gonna rush the story, Mike.
2: But we don't have a choice, Robbie. If we don't rush to print, somebody else is gonna find these letters no. and butcher this story. Joe Quimby from the Herald was at the freaking courthouse.
5: So we'll write a holding story, and we'll keep our eye on the Herald. Baron told us to get law. This is law. Baron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. No, let's take it up to Ben let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time.
1: It's time, Robbie. It's time.
5: They knew, and they let it happen to kids. Okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. We got to nail these scumbags. We got to show people that nobody can get away with
3: this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. Powerful stuff.
2: I think it really shows that The Fifth Estate is not a monolith. You have uh, the journalists who are the gatekeepers who are, you know, towing the line. And then you have the uh, firebrands that sometimes are the ones who get things done. And so it's, it's a film that both critiques and champions journalism.
3: And finally, we have The Post, a film from 2017 whose origin story is as interesting as the movie plot itself. First-time screenwriter Liz Hanna graduated from the American Film Institute Conservatory before Donald Trump became president in 2016. She fell in love with the biography of Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham, who died in 2011, and she wrote The Post to give voice to Graham's experience. Steven Spielberg was impressed with the script and wanted a very quick turnaround, making the film in less than 10 months. Interestingly, Josh Singer, who wrote (laughs) Spotlight, co wrote the final version of the post. Uh, Hannah and Singer were nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Original Screenplay, and the cast is typically wonderful for a Spielberg film Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Matthew Reese. Carrie Coon, Sarah Paulson, Bob Odenkirk, Bradley Whitford, Jesse Plemons, and I could go on and on. Yeah,
2: everyone wanted a piece of that casting, no matter what, how small a part, and you really see that. Uh, but set in 1971, The Post chronicles Catherine Graham's struggle to turn the small family-owned Washington Post into one of the premier newspapers, which is, it is today, while Ben Bradley, is campaigning frantically to publish the infamous Pentagon Papers, a cache of documents compiled by former Department of Defense official Daniel Ellsberg. And the the Pentagon Papers we know details over two decades of lies and missteps responsible for America's disastrous war in Vietnam. Graham, always considered a socialite, inherited the paper after her husband's death and immediately faced the harsh reality of being a woman in a man's world. She's only there because she's a widow. Graham has has to convince the profit-obsessed board of directors he is a viable publisher, while also winning over the crusty and somewhat chauvinistic Bradley, along with the hard-boiled, typically all-male newsroom. So what you have in the post is a hashtag MeToo storyline folded into the heroic journalism narrative Spielberg was always focused on.
3: The film begins with Ellsberg's fact-finding mission to Vietnam in 1966, and his realization that then-Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, a close personal friend of Graham, was committed to the lie about Vietnam, despite knowing the truth. America is in the war to not lose, costing countless lives and treasure he leaks it first to the New York Times, which is forced to cease and desist by the Nixon White House in court. This gives the Washington Post a window to fill the void and begin publishing its own copy provided by Ellsberg. Both Graham and Bradley have to come to terms with the fact that for decades, they befriended their journalistic subjects, often protecting them rather than reporting honestly about their misdeeds. Here's a clip of Bradley raising this issue with Graham as she debates taking the monumental step of publishing the Pentagon Papers. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question?
0: Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't
1: think you're going to
5: like the real one either.
4: Do you have the papers?
5: Not yet.
4: Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Because, you
0: know, the, the uh, position that would put me in, you know, we have language in the prospectus. That we're yeah, I know. I know that which, the bankers which... can change their
1: mind. That's And I know what is at stake. You know, the only couple I knew that both Kennedy and LBJ wanted to socialize with was you and your husband. And you own the damn paper. But since the way things worked, politicians and the press, they trusted each other so they could go to the same dinner party and drink cocktails and tell jokes while there was a war raging in Vietnam. I don't know what
0: we're talking about. I'm not protecting Lynn. No,
1: you got his former Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, the
4: man who commissioned this study. He's one of about a dozen party guests out on your I'm not protecting any of them, I'm
3: protecting the paper. Yes, just protecting the paper, and this is of course after Bradley is coming to terms with his own very close relationship with um, Kennedy.
2: Yeah, but of course he has to go after Catherine first before he can do that himself. I, I find that kind of typical too—that you know he's going to blame her and then he can realize, oh yeah, I was doing that too. Uh, but you know, Catherine Graham, who's you mentioned the bankers—he's that clip mentions the bankers. She's uh, in the middle of this, you know, going public scenario, and she has to navigate the hazards of of taking the post public with the full weight of the vengeful Nixon White House bearing down on her. So, and McNamara, who is no longer in office necessarily, he's not serving in a position, but he has his own reputation to take care of. He's obviously not wanting the post to go through with this, and he get, he confronts Katherine Graham uh, about what it means to cross this particular president. So let's listen to that.
5: We've been through a lot, haven't we? You and Marg were there for me. The lowest point of my life. You helped me. You've selected my entire board. You're my most trusted advisor, my dear friend. My feelings about that and about you can't uh, be part of this decision to publish or not. I'm here asking your advice, Bob, not your permission.
4: Well, then as one of your most trusted advisors and someone who knows how much you care about this company, I'm worried, okay? You know, I worked in Washington for 10 years. I've seen these people up close. Bobby and Lyndon, they were tough customers, but Nixon is different. He's got some real bad people around him, and if you publish, he'll get the very worst of them, the Colsons and the Ehrlichmans, and he'll
5: crush you. I know, he's just awful, but he's I... He's just
4: Nixon's a son of a bitch! He hates you, he hates Ben, he's wanted to ruin the paper for years, and you will not get a second chance, Kay. Okay. The Richard Nixon I know will muster the full power of the presidency, and if there's a way to destroy your paper, by God, he'll find it.
3: Well, McNamara was right, because Attorney General John Mitchell threatened to imprison everyone associated with the Pentagon Papers story under the Espionage Act of 1917, which will come up again later. The New York Times and Washington Post sued for the right to publish, claiming Nixon could not prove doing so would cause... Grave and irreparable danger. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the papers six to three on June thirtieth, nineteen seventy-one, and the film ends with Graham emerging triumphant from the Supreme Court and wading through a sea of admiring young women. Remember, this movie also was created in the wake of the start of the um, Me Too. Um, resurgence after the Harvey Weinstein um, accusations. And Spielberg can't resist a nod to round two of Richard Nixon versus the Washington Post, the Watergate break in, which finishes off the film. And those are our three films.
2: But at this point, we have to revisit and ask you know, what was going on when these movies were made? Well, as with previous episodes, we're going to be highlighting multiple moments in order to understand what these writers and directors were responding to. But these moments were connected because what was allowed and encouraged in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 sent the Fifth Estate and the society that should value it down a very slippery slope.
3: The first lie agreed upon that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode is that there is a heroic fifth estate acting as a watchdog against powerful institutions. These three films reassure us that this can still happen, but that it's not the norm in the age of corporate media and the amazing popularity of Fox News.
2: Yeah, I think we tend to assume Fox News has been around for a long time, but it was launched in 1996. As a result, and because their brand of hyperpartisan narrative shaping disguised as news was such a new thing, after 9-11, the journalism ecosystem was still trying to incorporate Fox News by taking them at their word that they were intending to do serious journalism. Their tagline, fair and balanced, hadn't been abandoned yet. The 2000 election cycle, including the highly contested presidential results, had shown where things were headed with Fox News, but deference to established institutions, the inbred interchangeable world of political, corporate, and media leadership, ensured that rather than pressuring Fox News to change, the rest of the media and the press were encouraged to take up the same practices.
3: Yeah, and within days of 9-11, the Bush-Cheney administration was capitalizing on fear, paranoia, and patriotic fervor to push for the creation of a new national security state, and Fox News was very happy to champion that cause. As we discussed in episode two, terrorism has always been about spectacle, and 9-11, as well as the subsequent two wars, until the public got tired of them, were unending sources of fodder for 24-hour news coverage. Real journalism took a backseat to simply capturing the trauma and sorrow of the event, while news media organizations often served as an unwitting mouthpiece for the Bush administration's response. Between the Patriot Act, which passed just 45
2: days after 9-11, and the fabrication of intelligence linking al-Qaeda to Saddam Hussein, the need for honest journalism was paramount. But with few exceptions, the Fifth Estate failed us. Some, like the venerable New York Times, aided and abetted a march to war by reporting uncorroborated or unnamed sources as fact or uncritically examining data fed to them by the administration. Meanwhile, Bush-Cheney succeeded in equating criticism of its national
3: security efforts with disloyalty or even treason. In short, the Fifth Estate failed us when we needed the most. But in the aftermath of the Iraq fiasco, Journalists came back strong, if too late for the thousands killed. The papers of record began to investigate again and brought some well-deserved skepticism back into the equation. Good
2: Night and Good Luck was made in the middle of the Iraq disaster,
3: and it is clear
2: the film is about reminding us of what happens when the press rolls over for tyrants and bullies. Um, so Bill Moyer's PBS documentary on the subject was, Buying the War, which is from 2007, you know, it was all about this idea of of journalism being co-opted or punished by by Bush Cheney. And uh, I thought we should include this clip about two Knight Ritter journalists who challenged the conventional wisdom about the Iraq war coming from the major newspapers, including the New York Times. But as we'll see here, sadly, their reporting was completely ignored. Let's play that clip.
5: John Walcott wasn't buying the official line either. The bureau chief of Knight Ridder News Service, he and his reporters covered Washington for 32 newspapers spread across the country. Our readers aren't here in Washington. They aren't up in New York. They aren't the people who send other people's kids to war. They're the people who get sent to war. And we felt an obligation to them to explain why that might happen. It was not clear to us why anyone was asking questions about Iraq in the wake of an attack that had Al Qaeda written all over it. He assigned his two top reporters to investigate the claims. Between them, Warren Strobel and Jonathan Landay had more than 40 years' experience reporting on foreign affairs and national security. They had lots of sources to call on. They went about their reporting the old-fashioned way, with shoe leather, tracking down and meeting with sources deep inside the intelligence community. When you're talking to the working grunts, you know, uniformed military officers, intelligence uh, professionals, professional diplomats, those people are more likely than not, not always of course, but more likely than not, to tell you some version of the truth and to be knowledgeable about what they're talking about when it comes to terrorism or the Middle East and things like that. Strobel learned that within two weeks after 9-11, senior intelligence officers were growing concerned that the Bush administration was stretching little bits and pieces of information to connect Saddam Hussein to Al Qaeda with no hard evidence. There was a lot of skepticism among our editors um, because what we were writing was so at at odds with what most of the rest of the Washington press corps was reporting. And some of our papers, frankly, just didn't run the stories. They have access to the New York Times
3: uh, wire and the Washington Post, um, you know, wire, and uh, they chose those stories instead. So it's really worth noting from that clip that uh, Knight Ritter was in fact itself a newspaper syndicate that was bought out in 2006. And so those voices from around the country, those uh, newspapers representing the interests of average Americans who were not within that elite bubble of the Northeast are even less represented now uh, than they were then. And by the time Spotlight was released in 2015, newspapers from around the whole country were dying. The Boston Globe, once a premier newspaper, was sold to the New York Times in 1993 and was then resold in 2013 to the owner of the Red Sox. And the paper lost 94% of its value in that time. A trend leading to the death of hundreds of papers and the absorption of once proud independent papers into massive media conglomerates.
2: Yeah, and it's, you know, Spotlight shows reporters successfully taking on the millennia-old institution of the Catholic Church. But really, investigative journalism's true nemesis is corporate media centralization and the death of print, something no one could stop. So the era of heroic journalism portrayed in The Post and with Good Night and Good Luck, uh, the same issue, but on, you know, the side of, of uh Television. Uh, this seems like a million miles away, not because there are no more brave journalists, but because there are just fewer venues to read them or to watch. You know, well well known reporters doing their job.
3: And the other thing that was happening ties together Spotlight and the Post. When these movies were released, these later two movies, there had been a series of whistleblower events in the decade between the start of the Iraq War and when Spotlight was released. In particular, Chelsea Manning released classified military files to WikiLeaks in 2010, and in 2013, Edward Snowden, through intermediaries, gave classified material to The Guardian The Washington Post, and later to Der Spiegel and The New York Times. So all those
2: papers were vilified by the Republicans,
3: accused of treason, but
2: the Obama administration relied on the 1917 Espionage Act to repeatedly go after anyone in the press seeming to be cooperating with whistleblowers. In just one instance in 2013, the Obama administration seized Associated Press phone records without notice because they had disclosed information about a foiled al-Qaeda terrorist plot. Remember, it's the 1917 Espionage Act that John Mitchell used to threaten Catherine Graham and the Washington Post and the New York Times.
3: And another way in that we can connect this to the Pentagon Papers story is that we have a great clip we'll play of Daniel Ellsberg talking specifically about Obama's war On whistleblowers.
4: I said before Obama there were three indictments. Obama has brought five in these two years. If he brought it against Assange, if they did six, it would be twice as many as all previous presidents put together. And two of them were for acts undertaken under Bush, which Bush had not indicted. So in other words, we're not looking back applies to the myriad crimes of the Bush administration, torture, aggressive war, uh, warrantless wiretapping, crimes that actually strike at the heart of our Constitution as well as our domestic law. No looking back on those. The only looking back is on whistleblowers. To me, uh, and again, why Obama so much, I, I have a hypothesis. It really, this is just very speculative. One of the great secrets in the cable's release is how little difference there is from 2008 to 2009. They're the same practices, the same torture. Not that much difference. But I think he's uh, he's really doing it more aggressively than any previous president. And specifically, he's doing it by treating the act that I was charged under as an official secrets act, as an act that criminalizes all leaks. And if he gets a conviction that if they go up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court takes it and doesn't notice that it is unconstitutional, which is not a bad bet. And if he gets that, he has a very broad official Secrets Act. And from then on, all he has to do to find out who is the source of any leak is to call in the reporter whose byline is on the head of of that column and say, we're not charging you with anything. We're not against the press. We're for the press. Just who committed the crime?
2: Yeah, I think that's a reminder maybe that the imperial presidency... Is bipartisan that in the era of the national security state, it doesn't matter what party they're coming from. It is easily abused, and uh, that's uh, maybe sometimes lost in these films that you know show the you know the conservative or the Republicans as as always the enemy. In this case, it's not always. And Ellsberg knew that
3: exactly, and of course, if the press are the ones that these whistleblowers are leaking to, even if they're not. Arrested, uh, even if they're not charged, then in the uh, court of public opinion, it's very easy for administrations and for competitor news agencies to call them traitors. So by the time Trump arrived in the White House, his total undisguised frontal assault on the Fifth Estate was really only the natural endpoint of a long process. And as soon as he took office, his war against the press took off. So the 10-month timeline for Spielberg from decision to make the movie to the release date, which was December 5th, 2017, was really a direct retort to Trump's attempts early in his administration and then picking up steam as his administration went along to bar critical press from the White House And a direct challenge to news media that still thought it was more important to cultivate relationships with the Trump administration than it was to critique it. But in this moment, what we had also was um, people who were sympathetic to Trump's attempts to shut down um, uh, the uh, media access. Calling upon shadows from previous eras, like the HUAC hearings, and saying, maybe we need to return to those. You know, maybe we need to bring back the hearings in order to instill fear in the American public again, including fear in the media. And we have a clip here of uh, Newt Gingrich where he really explicitly lists all the people who are at fault.
1: I I think you've had a national elite. Uh, The major newspapers, the major networks, uh, the Obama presidency, uh, many academics, many of whom, by the way, are funded by countries like Saudi Arabia. Uh, You've had a whole wave of people who've told us over and over and over again, going all the way back to George W. Bush, who said Islam is a, a religion of peace, and therefore to suggest that somebody who might be Muslim might be dangerous is a sign that you're you know you're 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 an Islamophobe. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have been fired from the federal government for honestly reporting on the tenets of Sharia
3: so as you can hear there, we have this very clear uh, vilification of the press, the Obama administration, actually even the Bush administration, which is uh, an amazing. Uh, an amazing thing as well, uh, coming from Newt Gingrich. Um, and then as we get later in this clip, uh, at that a later point, um, Newt Gingrich uh, also comes out and uh, advocates again for the uh, return to some good old uh, HUAC hearings.
1: Uh, So I think what you've had is a a widespread, particularly on the left and particularly with Obama and Clinton and and the administration, effort to suppress telling the truth about the threats we face. There is a worldwide movement that hates us. Now how do you change the law? How do you allow the FBI, for example, to use common sense and best judgment? Do you think So let me go a step further. Yeah. Because remember, San Bernardino, Fort Hood, and Orlando involve American citizens. We're going to ultimately declare war on Islamic supremacists, and we're going to say if you pledge allegiance to ISIS, you are a traitor, and you have lost your citizenship, and we're going to take much tougher positions. In the late 1930s, President Franklin Roosevelt was faced with Nazi penetration in the United States. We we originally created the House Un-American Activities Committee to go after Nazis. We passed several laws in 1938 and 1939 to go after Nazis, uh, and we made it illegal. To help the Nazis. We're gonna presently have to go take the similar steps here.
2: Yeah, I think we we remember a lot of us unfortunately know that New Gingrich is a was has a PhD in history. He's a terrible historian, but but he is a historian. And he can you get something right, which is that HUAC does start under a democratic president, and, and that really folds into our our second lie agreed upon, which is that you know, those who abuse power are Republican presidents or in the case of Spotlight, you know, an inherently conservative institution like the Catholic Church. And that's not so. Uh, The reality is far more bipartisan. And even if our films don't necessarily show that. And so we have some great Hollywood liberal stuff going on here. Uh, It's all fine and good to harp on Joe McCarthy and the HUAC. But as Newt reminded us in that clip, you know, it is 1938 Uh, during FDR's second administration, and it's run by a
3: Democratic congressman named Martin Dees. HUAC investigated disloyalty and subversive activities among private citizens, civil service employees, and prevented Hollywood from making any political statement against fascism while rooting out suspected communists. Also, it was Harry Truman another Democrat, who pushed for loyalty oaths like the sort the CBS newsroom complain about in Good Night and Good Luck. The Hollywood blacklist amid the Second Red Scare in the late 1940s represented another Truman-era stain on American history. And, And then Mr. Moderate himself, Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican officially, was happy to let McCarthy do his thing before he just became unbearable, and pre- predictably turned on his own president's bureaucracy.
2: So CNN's very excellent Cold War documentary, which was produced in the late 1990s, now covers the blacklist. And we have a clip here that has some audio from three very famous people you might be able to recognize, Gary Cooper, Ronald Reagan, who at that point is president of the Screen Actors Guild, and actor Robert Taylor. And so this these are, are clips from the hearings held between 1947 and 1949 under, you know, Truman's administration.
0: Have you ever observed any communistic information in any scripts. Well, I've turned down
1: quite a few scripts because I thought they were tinged with communistic ideas. They uh, haven't attempted to use me. I don't think because apparently, um,
0: They know that I'm not very sympathetic to communism. There has been a small group within the Screen Actors Guild which has consistently opposed the policy of the Guild Board and Officers or the Guild itself as evidenced by the vote on various issues. That uh, small clique has been referred to, has been discussed, as more or less following the tactics that we associate with the Communist Party.
5: If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia. Or some other unpleasant place.
2: Yeah, sometimes we forget that the, that HUAC not only is Democratic, but the blacklist itself started under Truman and not Joe McCarthy.
3: And so when we get to the story that the post is based on, it's important to really focus on the fact that it is a little bit elided in the movie itself, that the point of the Pentagon Papers is that the free press has been giving a free pass, really, uh, to administrations going back for decades. So the Post pits the free press versus Richard Nixon, but the Pentagon Papers themselves is the story of endless lies propagated by every president since Ike and especially liberal icons JFK and, of course, Lyndon Johnson. Nixon was really just the last in a series of presidents executing the containment doctrine. So
2: Ben Bradley has to atone for his close relationship with the Kennedys, and Catherine Graham befriended the power l- elite no matter who they were. Just to look at how close she was with McNamara who was both Kennedy and Johnson's Secretary of Defense and truly the primary architect of the Vietnam War strategy. What we have here is what journalist and historian David Halberstam called the best and the brightest. All these men from a certain era socioeconomic group and a handful of Ivy League universities gliding into enormously powerful positions, not because it was their right, but it was because what was expected of them. Political affiliation meant nothing. The national security state thrived on continuity, and I think The Post and Goodnight and Good Luck show us that very well.
3: Yes. I mean, I really hate to uh, throw it to Newt Gingrich, but <laughs> in a way, when he talks about there being an elite, it's not uh, in some ways much different from Bill Moyer's pointing – having the editor uh, from Knight Ritter – Pointing out the difference between the story that they were hearing from uh, elites, uh, people who were within certain circles of power who wanted a certain narrative, versus those who were the grunts uh, working on the ground in these various fields and, um, of course, around the world.
2: Yeah, I think in all of these cases you have, uh, you know, institutions that are as old as, for example, the fifth estate or the national security state, which is a creation of a coal, a democratic cold war president, or, um, you know, that, that this, that this, these institutions are timeless and it doesn't really matter at least in the era before Trump, maybe who's in charge. There's always going to be continuity in favors being, uh, offered and accepted for access. And I think, uh, you know, the the best and the brightest of the fifth estate are the ones that can break that cycle. And in some cases, you see it, in some cases, you don't. And uh, our three films show us kind of both sides.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, you know, we, we want to point out that, that, you know, Spielberg could have made a movie about the Pentagon Papers. He could have made a movie that was actually about the endless war. And he could have made that during the Obama administration, to critique the Obama administration, it's that administration that kept Guantanamo Bay open that didn't end the war in Afghanistan, but it becomes something so urgent that it gets thrown together in this ten month period once Trump perceived to be this real threat that that's where he wants to level his critique uh not potentially, you know, uh, six years earlier, leveling it um, at the Obama administration.
2: Right. You know, I think that, yeah, there's a uh, certain urgency about Trump that we all feel, of course, but we tend to forget that the the path to his accession of power was was well laid, <laughs> and and by skipping some of these previous these other examples, you're kind of missing a, a bigger picture. Uh, if I could say something about more about the you know, the the uh, the newsroom mentality here in all three of these movies, you know, we have um, something really amazing to see. We have one movie that's set in 1953, one in 1971, and the spotlight is 2001. But the gender politics of those newsrooms seem to be unchanging and that is you have almost no women uh in certainly in power but very few even doing the job of journalism yet it's covering you know nearly it's a half a century and while this this is accurate you know the films are historically accurate trying to show that it's to me it's jarring to see and and that actually play out in real life you have these smoky you know in the case of, of good luck and good night and good luck um you know, all white guys. I think all the movies are basically all white guys doing the heroic journalism, and a few women scattered in the background holding papers or answering the phone. And even in though the the, the uh, in Spotlight, which is two thousand one, you have Rachel McAdams as the one female journalist. That's that's it's reality, but it's also just so disturbing to see, and and you makes you realize that's something that. Uh, it's not covered very well necessarily by these films. but it's yeah, present and I'd also to, like to point to out viewer. that
3: if given the opportunity to actually take a moment to articulate the value of the women who were in those newsrooms, the the writers and directors actually um, in some cases use them as the um, instead as a tool. To reinforce the, the era of the film. So, for example, in Good Night and Good Luck, when all of the characters are sitting around in the bar waiting for the newspapers to come out, because, of course, there isn't Twitter, there isn't the Internet, there isn't this instantaneous response to the takedown of McCarthy that they've just um, put on the air. They're all sitting around, all men, and Patricia Clarkson. And Fred Friendly, played by George Clooney, turns to Patricia Clarkson's character and says, Honey, would you go get all the papers for us? Now, that did not have to be incorporated into that script. But when given the opportunity to highlight the era to have this moment when the the 1953ness of it could be highlighted, what is used but an easy go to misogynist moment, which then of course simply reinforces the misogyny. Yeah, and it was, I, I thought of that. And I said this is kind of Mad Men
2: like, except it's not with a wink and a nod. It seems to be just very. It was very earnest, which and so as you say, is even more off putting in, in ways. And let's not let Spielberg off the hook here because because he he was in love with Catherine Graham because uh not only do you have the, you know the the newsroom itself is all these you know ben Bradleys is a chauvinist he, he very much is but but Catherine Graham is in that position because she's a widow, and while I think you get a real good sense of her um struggling with in and, and overcoming this obstacle and having a heroic end where she's all these young women are looking up to her you can't forget the fact that she's there because of wealth and privilege and and not because she's a competent woman she turns out to be one obviously and a brilliant publisher and a heroic publisher for what she did but she's there in spite of of being a woman uh, and not not in any way because she earned it and that's something that spielberg shows us without much commentary i'd say
3: They do do a very good job, I think, of depicting a woman's journey for herself into capability, into responsibility when she has not been raised and therefore not been equipped for that role to begin with. And I think that they do, uh, that Spielberg and the writers do do a good job of of that. But yet again, as you say, in this entire newsroom we basically have Carrie Kuhn. And she also is given this role at the very end of the movie of basically answering the phones. <laughs> answering the phones. And so then she gets this speech Where, Which is the classic Spielberg, just in case people didn't get it, let's make sure to hit them over the head with it, uh, little speech that is um, about the newspaper uh, message of the movie. And so it seems like she's got a more central role than she actually does. But everything that comes before that really sort of sidelines her. And I would argue, quite frankly, that the Rachel McAdams character in uh, Spotlight is also given the sort of gendered female, warm and fuzzy tasks when it comes to the investigation. She's the one that is sort of having the, you know... Figuratively speaking, having the cups of tea with people and you know, chatting with them to get them to trust her, or um, reminding the viewer of the movie where the um, the 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 emotional connection to the Catholic Church is for people actually living in Boston who are devout Catholics, and so in both of those cases, she's she's sort of stripped of her professional credentials a lot of the time in order to fulfill this kind of humanizing role. Um, so I think it's it's important. While you know, we don't want to say that these you know that that means that that these movies should be dismissed, but we do want to point out that all of these these tropes are still playing out even in these movies. True, yeah, it's
2: a uh, it's. I remember McAdams' character; it's her mother who's very much, you know, still an ardent Catholic, and that's where you get this. Um, this bond they have and and she also is the one who must make the victims feel better about coming to give, giving him her stories and that like you said and she's very she's uh, unequal to Mark Ruffalo but you get a sense by watching the film that that she is the mentee in a very real gendered typical way and and not not equal so in fact in real life i think honestly i saw a documentary that showed that uh she was i think a little more senior than he was, but you would never, get, you would never get that sense in, in the film. Something about Spotlight, I do want to, I think we'd be remiss in not noting this, that the investigation that of the Catholic church coincides with 9-11 itself. And so we have a very interesting part of the film where uh, they have to drop everything because 9-11 has just happened and they have to now go report on, you know, what this means for Boston, what the, you know, every all the, this, the world stops for 9-11 and um, you even got to see Cardinal Dolan be a hero and and give this great speech uniting, you know, Bostonians and 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 they have to you know suck on that as, as in a very uncomfortable way. Uh, but I found there's a really kind of hidden scene here where one of the journalists who lives nearby one of these priest houses uh, and is very scared for his for his children living so close. On his refrigerator, he has um, a note saying, telling the kids, don't go near this house. But the note is held up by a never forget 9-11 magnet. And I thought the placement of that was very interesting because it says never forget. And the message here is don't forget this investigation. (laughs) Don't forget that there's other news going on here just because there's 9-11. And it's really within months of of 9-11 that they do break the story. And uh, I think that's telling, you know, that this, that journalism goes on and it's a, it's a slog and certainly there's nothing uh, always very exciting about the work that they do in spotlight. But I, I found that placement of the never forget magnet, you know, a nice touch. It wasn't spielberg ass. It didn't bash over the head.
3: I agree. I agree. And That helps to bring us back to home base in a sense, because it may seem like this episode in its exploration of the sustained attack on the Fifth Estate over the past 20 years has moved far afield from 9-11. But we hope that we have shown that um, if it was a, a First, a fear of Nazis and then communists uh, that resulted in the denigration of journalists who questioned uh, the HUAC hearings and McCarthy. And then it was the paranoia of the Nixon administration in the era of Vietnam and the Civil Rights Acts that had the same effect vilifying the press again in the era of Watergate that we can see that 9-11 really started a new cycle that even now, even today in 2020, we're feeling the direct effects of. And I would say uh, in asking you what your recommendations are from these films that I'll go out on a limb and say that both of us would rec- recommend all three of these films. This is a good week uh, for uh, watching uh, watching these movies, and um, I think that they are all really um, excellent films that are worth people's time. Yeah, not every week can we say that, but this week we have three
2: stellar films from you know one from uh, 2005 and, and two close together 2015 2017, all about this. Uh, no, they're good. Journalism films and her and and in a way that's not uh, they're too reductive or or simplistic and I I think uh, they hold up very well uh, including Good Night and Good Luck which is by now is fifteen years old that one really uh, is a timeless message because Edward Edward Moreau was always fighting the good fight and uh, you can easily see yourself in in him watching. Uh, McCarthy speak, you know, they're, he's, they're all horrified. And I think we look at that every day now and, and we're, we're horrified. Um, and we can put ourselves in his shoes and, and some of these journalists' shoes. So, yeah, it's, it's a big thumbs up on all three of these. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah. And the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lies Agreed Upon. That's at Lies underscore upon.